I've been talking to you about the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. Now, some of you may ask the question, when are you going to be finished talking about grace? If I can help it, and if the Holy Ghost can help me, never, never. I'm a preacher of grace. My message has never changed. I've just understood it more. You know, I was reading this story. I read it to our Sunday school class, and it was T. Austin Sparks, who knew a family, very godly family, and he said, the father of that family reminded me so much of Charles Finney. In his spirit, his soul, his manners, he had wonderful children, very godly children, and one of the men in the family was a close, close friend to T. Austin Sparks, who is a very godly man. Well, one day they met, they encountered each other on the street or somewhere, and he said, my friend had the biggest smile upon his face, and he said he was just one big smile. And he asked him, why are you so happy? And he said, I discovered something. Sparks said, what did you discover? He said, I discovered that Christ in me is the hope of glory. And Sparks said, well, I could have told you that years ago. He said, that's the difference. Years ago, you knew it. Today, I know it. Thank God. You know, everything God's trying to teach us is not in a book. It's in a person. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. He wants to show us that and teach us that. Well, you know, you just, I, I thank God for the ministry and the gospel of the grace of God. That's what it's called, the gospel of the grace of God. I thank the Lord for it. I don't know why so many people in the church are afraid of grace. They're afraid of grace as though if, if you preach grace and you minister grace, they're afraid as though you're going to be able to live any type of lifestyle you want to live. And that only reveals how little the church knows about grace. Well, I pray with all of my heart, you're not going to learn something because I tell you. But I do pray that what comes forth from this will prepare you that when it happens in your life, and you need the grace of God, you will recognize it for what it is. Because I'll tell you, in the time of your crisis, two people are going to come to meet you, Lucifer and God. And Lucifer's going to offer you guilt, condemnation, and destruction, but God's going to offer you grace. And I pray that it'll be so in your spirit that you will recognize the voice of grace when he talks to you that you'll have hope and you won't quit and you won't despair because you will believe he is able. You will never say you're able, but you will say he is able. The cry of the believer who has been touched by grace is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The cry of legalism is I must do all things because of Christ or I'll go to hell. There's a big difference in that. The man of grace says it's because he's in me. And the man of legalism says it's by duty that I must do it or else. Well, I'll tell you, I want to live in the grace of God. I want to live in it. I'm so very desperate for it. We just begin to think, some people do, that you preach grace, then, you know, you, you talk about righteous living, that it'll just never occur. Why, for God's sake, would anybody think that righteousness, which will never come by the law, could ever be as good as the imputed righteousness that Jesus puts within you? I mean, it's a very real thing. It's not just legal terms, but it's a true intervention of God in your life. Christ in you, the hope of glory, is absolutely the desire of God. If the object of God were simply our salvation from hell and destruction, grace would have a very easy task. All grace must do is cause, cause us to call upon Jesus for our salvation from hell. But we need to be purified. We must be purified as well as pardoned. This is the object of grace. Justification without sanctification is not our answer. It'll leave us in a miserable state. Sin is never going to leave you happy. Sin will give you happiness, but it'll never leave you happy. Grace may challenge you to walk a hard path, but it'll make you happy in Jesus Christ. 
Justification demands sanctification. That's the genius of Christianity. God doesn't want to just justify you so you don't go to hell. God wants to give you the incredible joy and blessings of all that his nature is. He wants to give you that. If it's only justification, it's like telling a leper you're healed and sending him away to go die of his disease. He's not healed at all. He wants a real answer for his problem, and the sinner wants a real answer to their sin. And all of that is found in grace. It's not found anywhere else. And I want you to see in Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read from here this morning, and I want you to really grasp this, the, the purpose that I'm teaching now. I've been talking about the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament What I want to focus on today and maybe the next couple of Sundays is the believer has a new teacher, and that teacher is grace. That's our teacher, and we are the students of grace. Now, don't think for a moment that grace is a thing. It's not. It's a person. Grace is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ manifested in the person of the Holy Ghost. That is grace. Don't think of it as anything else. That's what it is. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, and that mercy is just demonstrated grace, God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he has quickened us together with Christ, By grace. Does your Bible add a plus to anything? Grace and, grace and, grace and, just by grace you are saved. Why does it say that? Because if it is the grace of God, everything that is demanded will come in that grace. That's why. It's not to add anything to it. And he has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, now this is the purpose, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace, plus nothing, by grace are you saved through faith. How do you get that grace? You believe. You believe in Christ, and he gives you that grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Just a few highlights from this. If you would pick up on this, he tells us in verse 10, we are the workmanship of God. We're his workmanship unto good works. And God wants to work in us and perform good works in us so that God will be able to demonstrate through us the riches of his kindness that he has shown us through Jesus Christ. And so understand that there is something extremely valuable to God that you make it. Do you understand this? There is something extremely valuable to God that you make it. That you make it to heaven. That you make it in Christ. That you make it through your battles. You make it through your fights. You make it through your struggles. You overcome your bondages, that the devil doesn't beat you somewhere along the line and you win. It is valuable to God that you do because God, because of his name, has invested his grace and his power in your life as a believer. That's what God has done. So God is not going to abandon you and he's not going to forsake you. Sometimes we live under the impression that God is waiting for me to mess up. God is waiting for me to make a mistake. That God is maybe waiting for this to happen so he can shut the door of heaven upon me. But that is the furthest thing from the truth. God, by his grace, has taken unto himself your life, my life, as his workmanship. 
He's done that. Now, there's a few of you in this church that have an ability to create things. You're, you, you're able to build things from, from scratch, from wood, things like that. You can build furniture. You can build houses. You can do things like that. Well, I would probably say that most of you that would take a project onto yourself, you, you take a lot of pride in that. When you build something, it is your reputation that's in it. And so you want to do a good job. You think about it. You plan it out. And as you're planning it out, you're measuring everything. You're drafting it. You're designing it. And you go according to that pattern. When you run into obstacles, maybe the wood is a little bit difficult. Well, you don't give up on the project. You just continue to work. You make a mistake in, in your design. You cover that. You repair that. You fix that so you don't throw your project away. You don't tear the house down when it's three quarters finished because you've made a little mistake. You take more time in that mistake until you get it right. Well, listen to me. God makes no mistake. No mistake. Please get this. When God picked you up in your sin. He counted the cost. It's not you counting the cost. He did. What king goes to war without first considering the cost and seeing, do I have enough men to win? What builder would ever build a tower without first considering the cost of that tower and finding out, do I have the ability to finish it? I don't want to leave it half done. I want to be able to accomplish. Well, you're not the builder. I'm not the builder. The church isn't the builder. Jesus is the builder. I'm not the king. You're not the king. The church isn't the king. Jesus is the king. And when he found you in your sin, he picked you up and he counted the cost. If I take this life unto me, can I finish it? Can I accomplish what I want to accomplish in this life? Can I bring this life from death to life, from sin to glory, from hell to heaven? Can I do it? And when God picked you up, he picked you up knowing I will accomplish this project. I will do it. And God has the ability to do it. You're his workmanship. He makes no mistake before he ever took you. He, know, he knew every complication. He's not some carpenter having to work with stubborn wood. He is the living God who works with stubborn people and he knows our stubbornness and he knows just how to bend us until we conform to Christ. He makes no mistakes. He's not going to throw us away. He's going to finish the task and one day, one glorious day, he is going to hold you up before all of his creation. You're the crowns, you're the jewels in his crown and he's going to hold you up and he is going to receive the glory for the salvation he's brought to a fallen humanity. All because of Jesus. That's what he is going to do. And that's the gospel of grace. We're saved by grace through faith. You know, and so we must always keep our faith in Jesus Christ. We have to keep our faith in Jesus Christ. And as we keep our faith in Jesus, then all that grace is goes to work in our lives. But some buffoons out there think if you preach grace, you're not going to have a life of discipline or a life of obedience or a life of righteousness and a life of goodness. You definitely are, but it's not going to be in what you produce. It's going to be in what he who lives in you produces. He's going to do it. Oh, he's going to do it. He's gone to perform this and perfect this. Salvation is not the end. It is the beginning. It is only the beginning. And our ultimate destiny is glory and grace must get us there. God allows us to continue and he allows humans to be born and he allows history to go on for his namesake because God desires and will have Within his creation and within human people, the moral attributes and the moral glory and the moral qualities of his own being manifested through them because of the blood and the resurrection and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is going to get it. 
He is going to get it. He is going to have it. And he knows he's going to have it. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it's done. Everything you want, Father, you can have it now. It's done. I paid for it. I paid it in full. And now you can redeem and fill and save and deliver and heal. And God has been doing that throughout the centuries. God has been doing it. And he's doing it in our lives today. It's the wonder of God. Now, the law was our teacher until we came to faith. And until we came to faith, the law was our teacher. Now, the difficulty is, is that it's hard sometimes for us to abandon the law. We've lived with it all of our lives until we came to Jesus. It's, it just is, it is something that has been with us. It has a tremendous influence. The law, now you got to understand this. The law is not words on paper. The, the law is not words on stone. The law has a force and it has a power and it has an entity about it. The law does. And so the law has a tremendous effect upon people's lives, all people, all humanity, anywhere you go. The law of God is working upon all men. And it has an effect upon all men, and it's either bringing them to Christ or it's bringing them to death. And the law is not going to fail. The law is good, and the law is holy, and the law is going to do its job, and it's doing its job. And it's going to bring them to Jesus or it's going to bring them to hell. That's the purpose of the law. And that was our teacher. Well, the law brought us to the fact that we cannot fulfill the demands of God. That's, we can't. We can't do it. We cannot do the things that God has required. We cannot do the things that God has demanded. In the Old Testament, the law speaks. And the law says, thou shalt. It's just a command. It goes forth with force. Thou shalt. And we didn't. And the law goes forth with its command. Thou shalt not. And we did. And we're in trouble. Because what the law said not to do, we did. And what the law told us to do, we didn't do. And the law has placed its sentence upon our life. But God brought the law among men. So that men would be through that law brought to despair and brought to death that we might be brought to a place of absolute helplessness at the feet of Jesus Christ or at the foot of his cross. And, and this is the work of the law. The law is judging you. The law is condemning you. The law is bringing you down. The law is cutting you. The law is showing you exactly what you are. The law is showing you how you can't do any of the things that God wants you to do. And then the law brings you to such a miserable state of despair, hopelessness, and helplessness. If you can imagine this, I mean, because these are the people that are lost. Jesus said, I didn't come for the, for the well. I came for the sick. You know, those that are well don't need a doctor, but those that are sick do. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sinner. What does Jesus mean by that? It means this, that some people became righteous in their own eyes thought they were good enough to meet God in the condition of their own righteousness and thought that they had need of no one. But there were others, sinners, who knew that they were sinners. The law did its work on them, and it brought them to a place of despair. They found themselves at the foot of Jesus' cross in agony, despair, hopelessness, darkness, sin, and death. And in that miserable state, with their head and their lives bent low to the ground, grace came to them. Grace came to them with salvation. Grace came to them not telling them, thou shalt or thou shalt not. But grace came and said, he did. He did what you couldn't do. He paid what you couldn't pay. Look up to him and believe on him. 
As those Israelites were bitten by the serpents in the wilderness, all they had to do was look to that serpent on that pole that Moses stood up. Then if you will look to Christ, you will be saved. That's what grace tells you. Grace comes to you in your despair and grace gives you hope. Grace comes to you in your sin and tells you, listen, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's how grace teaches you. The law says you shall not. You shall. Grace comes and says blessed. Oh, what a wonderful teacher grace is. What a wonderful, you hear me? Grace is telling you blessed and the law is telling you cursed. Which teacher do you want to be under? The grace comes and says blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now don't twist that. Don't twist it. Understand the method by which grace teaches. Grace is not teaching counterwise to the law, because the law through fear tells you you better obey or you're going to go to hell. And then another form of legalism, which may call itself grace but is not, tells you about the reward, so you better behave so you get it. Neither one of those is grace. Grace sets before you the heart and the desire of God to tell men, I want you to be as happy as I am. I want you to be as blessed as I am. I want you to live in the eternal delight and glories of my kingdom. I want to bless you. I'm not saying blessed are those who can become poor in spirit. I'm saying blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That's something I make you. That's something I make. You don't become that. I make you that. And God, isn't it wonderful that God will do all of that for us? Could anything be more tremendous, more wonderful than a God who is actively involved in all of our lives to get us to heaven. But not to just get us to heaven, to get us to glory, in a glorified state. You see, the end is not salvation, it's the beginning. The destiny is glory. That God's universe is filled with redeemed children who are manifesting and revealing the absolute perfect moral qualities and characteristics of the living God. God is gonna do that. It is his workmanship to do it. It is his project, and he's doing it and has done it in the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the law teaches by precepts. The law is written outwardly. That's the law. That would be legalism. It's written outwardly. The law was written on stone. The unique fundamental difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is not so much the absence of law, but where the law is. In the old covenant, the law was on stone. But in the new covenant, God says emphatically to the Hebrews, I will write my laws upon your hearts and minds. You see, when I grew up, I had the most wonderful father, most wonderful mother growing up, you know, and they were great. You know, just great parents, everything, and my dad was the best at this as far as I knew. Maybe you would say yours was better. But I'll say this. My dad would tell me to do something, and I'd say, why? And that was all there was to it. I just don't say why. You do it because I told you to. That's, that's it. Well, that's law. That's, that's the law. The law says you just do what I tell you to do, or you're going to go to hell. Son, you do what I tell you to do, you're going to go to your room. You're going to do this. You're going to get a whooping. You're just going to get it. I mean, all these things. Well, grace comes and tells you why. But how many people are still living under the law? You're at church this morning. Why? Why are you here? Because somebody told you you had to. You read your Bibles. Why? You say your prayers. Why? Somebody told you you had to. Do we understand why? Grace wants to tell you why. Grace wants to set Jesus before you and give you such a love and desire for him that nothing could keep you away because you love him. And so the law teaches by precepts and commands and orders, but grace teaches you by bringing the person and the personality of Jesus inside your life, inside your heart, and he begins to teach you out of desire and out of burden and out of glory. He begins to teach you in your life. What do you have to do? Agree with it. Agree with what he's teaching you and by the spirit of God, work it out. 
Just work it out. What he's telling you inside you, work it out. Work it out. You don't go to church because your mama tells you, well, you might, if you're in the house, you go because mama tells That's a good thing. That's a good thing. You do that. Take nothing from that. My mom and dad told me I'm going to church, and I went, and one day I heard, thank God, they did that. But I'm just saying to you this morning, you've got to get to the point where it's grace talking to you on the inside. It's the Lord Jesus talking to you on the inside. I want to read something to you. A large number of Christians are just as much under the law as any Pharisee, but their legality now is Christian, not Jewish. They promote the same era as the Galatian church, which led so many who began in the spirit to try to finish in the flesh. The constant recurring danger is this. We who have known the power of the grace of God would fall back upon the legal demands of duties and responsibilities compelled from without, not commissioned from within. What a difference that is. We imagine in that state that we're living in gospel liberty. Because I now have the power to restrain myself. That's not gospel liberty. That is not the genius of Christianity. Mormons do that. Buddhists do that. You want to talk about restraining things? Try to be a Buddhist monk for a little while. No, do that. But I mean, think of what they restrain. Think of, think of the horrendous situations they're in. Freezing temperatures, restraining lust in their flesh, desires in their flesh, trying to get into harmony with everything that they can. You talk about restraint. That's a religion of restraint. And just because we as Christians do it now, we say that's the genius of Christianity. It's not. The genius of Christianity is Christ is in you. He's in you. He's changed something fundamentally inside of you. And that power comes forth through you. And so... We have this, this danger. Knowing God's grace, we go back to law. We call it gospel liberty. When really we're just under legal bondage as though Christ had never set us free at all. If you look to Christ for your beginning, beware of looking to yourself for your end. He is alpha. He must be your omega. He is the author of your faith. You better let him be the finisher of your faith, or it won't be finished. If you begin in the Spirit, you better finish in the Spirit. Nothing else. What, Mo what Moses with the tablets of stone could never do, Christ does it with his pierced hand and his precious blood. Legalism always wipes out grace and puts in its place law. Legalism always crucifies Christ afresh because legalism cuts out the greatest word in Christianity, and it's not forgiveness, it's grace. Grace. Some people think grace is forgiveness. No, forgiveness is one of the things offered in grace, but grace is so much more. Grace is holy living. Grace is righteousness. Grace is renouncing the hidden things of darkness. Grace is exposing ourselves to the light of Jesus that we might be like him. That's grace. It's nothing else. And dare we abandon our post at the house of God to allow anybody else to hang any other word on the doorpost of God's house other than the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or ain't nobody's coming in if they're not coming in by grace. You hear me? Nobody. That grace is Jesus. He, it is Jesus. It's not just something. A large number of Christians are taught but they're not taught by grace. They hope to come into God's favor. They hope to. Sometimes they're in it. Sometimes they're out of it. They never have the peace of just abiding in his grace and his favor at all times. Even when they're struggling. They seek to learn of Christ in order that they might attain the grace of Christ. They endeavor to become conformed to Christ in order that if they could resemble Jesus a little bit more, then maybe God would look more favorably upon me. Their idea is if they can only succeed in drilling and training themselves 
into something like the divine image of God, Jesus. We could be more like Him then God might be satisfied with me to some degree that he will bless me. He blessed you because of Jesus. And regardless of what these money-hungry preachers tell you on TV, God will heal you without you sending them money. He gave us Jesus. He'll give us everything freely by him. Everything. You are in the favor of God if you're in the Son. And if you're not in the Son, no matter what you do, you're not in His favor. If you experience His blessings, it's just because God pours His blessings out on the just and unjust because He's just a good God. He's a wonderful being, a wonderful person. That's just the way He is. And so their idea is that. It's a schoolmaster they're learning from, but not the schoolmaster of grace. But the new life is conscious of a new inward power within us. Forgetting what that power is, we're oftentimes tempted to go back to the law. Even those of us who know grace, we're tempted to do that. How many of us have wrestled with a temptation and possibly fallen into that sin only to come back to God to make vows and promises that we will never do it again rather than come back to him like we did the first time we met him and say, Lord Jesus, save me from this. It's me that my enemy's not so much the devil. It's what the devil has to work with in me. Save me, Lord Jesus. And we fall before God in faith and hope, believing that God is going to save us and help us. We live under a sense of legal obligation to the law. We feel obliged, obligated to fulfill it. Not because we find our true liberty in fulfilling the law, but because we feel it is our duty to do so, even at the sacrifice of personal freedom. And the more sacrifices of personal freedom we make, then obviously the more pleased God is with us. And that is not Christianity. It is not. God is not looking for the sacrifices of your things. He's looking for the sacrifice of yourself. He wants your life that he might be able to give you his life. He doesn't want your eyes upon the law and upon duties and obligations because most of that is just trying to make the people around me happy and somehow trying to appease God so I can go to heaven when I die. God wants us to live with our hearts and minds occupied with the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to focus upon him, live with him, and be in tune with him. There is a beauty in Jesus that wins the heart. I mean, it wins the heart. God's after the heart. You can't get away from that. All through the Old Testament into the New Testament, the one thing God wanted was man's heart. Why? Because out of the heart come all of the desires of man. Everything comes out of the heart. If God can have your heart, then Jesus will come out of your life. But whatever does have your heart, that's what's going to come out of your life. Whatever does. Those of you that have been born again, You've got a new heart. Jesus is in your heart. Now, don't go around saying you have a bad heart. You don't. You've got a good heart. It's a heart that's born again. It's a heart now that's flesh and not stone. It's a heart in which God has written his law within you. And that heart is good. Preserve that heart. Watch over that heart. Out of that heart, Jesus is going to come. But you must understand, there's still an old man on me that despises that new heart and lusts against that new heart. And sometimes it's very difficult to distinguish the raging passions of your love and the gentle cry of the Holy Ghost within your heart. And I'll tell you, Satan will use that to bring great devastation upon your life. There is a beauty in Jesus that wins the heart. How else do you explain Moses? How else do you do that? He had everything before him. He had all of Egypt. He had the wealth of Egypt. You know what he said? In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, Moses considered the reproach of Christ. Not heaven, not streets of gold, not gates of pearl, not a blessed life, but he considered the reproach of Christ 
to be greater riches than all of the wealth that Egypt could offer him. How do you come to that? It wasn't because Moses had some preacher in his life in some church that he went to that just kept instilling in him and instilling in him, Egypt is garbage, Egypt is dung. Do away with it, Moses. Quit living with these people. Quit seeking this life. Let it go. Do away with it. You're going to go to hell, Moses. No. One moment, he saw Christ. He saw him. And when he saw Jesus, everything of Egypt was exposed for what it was. It was filth and garbage. And even the hatred that they had for Jesus, I would love to have that rather than the gold of Egypt or the silver of Egypt. Give me the disdain you have for Jesus. Let it fall on me and I'd consider myself wealthy because he saw the infinite beauties of the living God. God wants to show himself to you. God wants you to fall in love with him. God doesn't want you to circumcise your skin. He wants you to circumcise your heart. God doesn't want us to worship him in church and draw this close to him. God wants us to worship him with our hearts and draw into his very presence and fill our hearts and fill our lives with his love. And for us to love him are the things that God wants and the things that God desires. This is what he's after. If all that Jesus did was come, and set before me such a high and splendid goal of what moral purity is and love and devotion to the Heavenly Father. I would look at that and I would say, that's beautiful. That is wonderful. That is absolutely fantastic. But I cannot attain that. I cannot do that. What Jesus has done, I cannot do. And let me tell you something. To the, to the, to the shame of the Christian church today, It falls at our door. Mine, as much as anybody, falls at our door to the shame of the Christian church today. There's a lot of people who tell us, well, that's wonderful for you. That's fine for you. That's great for you. But I could never live like that. And why do they say that? It's because of the legal standards we have put in place instead of keeping the grace, the doors of grace open for all men to come. And the same Jesus who picked me up in sin will pick you up in sin, who gives me hope will give you hope, and who will bring me to glory, he will bring you to glory if you'll just believe in him. He'll make you everything. See, we forget sometimes where we came from. We're so proud of our goodness now. We're so thankful for our righteousness. We're so thankful for our our good behavior as, as good moral people now, that, that other people look at that and say, I can't attain to that. But you didn't. God gave that to you. Let God give that to them. Grace is not a life of no obedience. But obedience comes not because I'm looking at obedience. I'm looking at Christ. I love him. I want to follow him. And when I get distracted or I get pushed to the side or my eyes are looking at something else, you know who's there to help me? Grace. How does it help me? It makes me feel destitute. Grace makes me feel alone. Grace, grace makes me ask the questions, you know, why haven't you been praying? That's what grace does to me. It's not like somebody comes to me, you know, you know how you can fake it. You can fake it with everybody, but you know you're not faking it with God. So people don't come up to you and say, why aren't you praying? But sometimes the Holy Ghost just gets to speaking inside your spirit. Says, you know, you're not as on fire for me as you used to be. And you know what he says? Why? Do you not love me anymore? That's all he has to say. That's all he has. Do you not love me anymore? And that's grace speaking. And that wins your heart to want to be with God and want to serve the Lord Do you not see that as you name Christ and conform to outward religion, you're strangers to the truth of Christianity? Don't even know what it means. You say your prayers in the morning because it's your duty. You do not feel comfortable if you don't say them. You bend your knees at the evening. It's expected of you. Your mother taught you. You say your prayer at the dinner table because you've been taught that. Out of a thing of respect. You read your Bible because you've been told that it's proper and good. You go to church But it is not because you love to go and cannot stay away or because you want more and more of God or delight in his worship. You go by habit and guilt. And what is it doing for us? I've 
I've often heard people say before, well, at least they're going to church now. Do you know there's a danger in that? A lot of times we take that as some, well, they're going to church now, at least that's good. Or they're going to some church now, at least that's good. It could be the most dangerous thing they've ever been in in their life. Don't misunderstand me, but it could be better if they were in a bar getting beat up, getting rejected by all of their friends. You know, in, in, in the church at Corinth, there was a situation that went on where great sin was going on in the church, and the apostle Paul said, take that man that is committing this sin because he's not repenting, he's not getting right, he has no problem with it, take that man and hand him over to Satan so that his body can be destroyed but his soul can be saved. Now we read that and we think, man, that is hard. That is really hard. Hand somebody over to Satan. How can you do that? But you know what the apostle Paul is doing? You sit that man in your church. You make him feel that everything's okay then he is going to become more calloused and more cold to the Word of God every time he hears it. Every time he tells Jesus no, he's become more hardened to ever tell Jesus yes. More times he sits under conviction and does nothing about it, the less likely he will ever be convicted again. And before long, he'll sit in that pew regularly like any other church person, but he has no care for God. And you can't make him care for God. His conscience is seared. Push him out of the church. Get him out of the church. Kick him out. To hand him over to Satan just simply means this is God's house. Get him out of God's house. Put him back in the devil's world. Let him live out there. Let the devil beat him up. Let the devil treat him bad because that's the way the devil does. Let him get miserable in that state and let him know how you're living is not Christ. But if you ever want him, you can come back. And that boy repented. And he came to God, just like Paul said, his soul got saved. But we sit a lot of people on our pews, and they never get right. Never, never get right. They just become Christians, and they look good. Everything looks kosher, but they never got right with God. Grace will get you right. Grace will get you right. Grace will not rest until you love God with all of your heart, but grace does it. And the more you love God, the more you're going to obey Him. The more you're going to follow Him. You're going to agree with Him. The more and more that you love Him. It's just falling in love with Jesus Christ. All of this is what it is. I want to kind of close with this. And I want you to understand this in, in, in what I'm going to say. Grace, it works in our life. And I know it works in my life like this. And I need a lot of grace. So I want to give a lot of grace. Because the measure you give, you receive. That's not just your money. Not just your, and I'm telling you, every one of you needs as much grace as me. You just don't know it. I know it. The problem with me is I don't know how much I really need. I just, God, I need it all. So just put yourself as the worst. You're just the worst. You have to live like that. But you have to live like that because you believe it. You believe it about yourself. You want to be a minister? You want to be a missionary? Nobody, nobody can be worse than you. Not to be the minister of Christ. Because that person that you think is worse than you is the person you'll never serve. You'll say you will, but you won't. You'll say you love them, but you won't. You say you care for them, but you won't. Grace will bring you down to where you belong. And then grace will begin to come through your life to minister to anybody Jesus gives you to minister to. And you administer to them with hope, with encouragement, with the desire of God to be able to work in their life. But this is how grace works in my life and how it affects me. Grace brings out a scale as it were, a balance. And on one side of the balance, grace pulls out all of my idols, takes my pride, the things I lust after, the things I go after, 
whatever it may be for you, whatever your idols are, money, fame, popularity, grace takes all of that and it puts it on the scale. I'm just telling you the honest truth of, of what it does with me. It puts it on the scale. I have, I have such a rebellious nature in me. And, and there are some people whose rebellious nature is so tempered. They're just good people. You know, in humans, they're just good people. I'm not. I have a rebellious nature. I was, I was whooped. Not whipped. That seems sissy. I was whooped. <laughs> About 12 times a day. Is that not true, D? I mean, I got it all the time. I was horrible. I mean, I got, I fussed, I fought back. I was going to do it my way. They can beat me. And you can, I'd just say, you can beat me again if you want to. I'm just doing it, you know. That's me. So you could tell me what I ought to do. I'd probably go do the opposite just because you told me that. That's the way I am. That's, my, that's my, one of my horrible things about me. I know you're not supposed to share these things. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> so that's me. You can tell me how I should be, what I should do. But the way grace wins me, keeps me, as bad as I am, but the way it keeps me is grace pulls all these things out. And it puts it on this side of the scale. And grace takes Jesus. And he puts him on this side of the scale. And he says to me, Lee, which one of these do you prize the most? And that gets me every time. It gets me every time. Dee spoke grace to me growing up. She would you know, I mean, we were church kids, Christian kids, believers in Jesus. But when I'd leave, go do something, go out, she would say, Lee, wherever you go, you're bringing Jesus. Whatever you watch, you're making him watch. Whatever you listen to, you're making him listen to. That was grace. She didn't say, if you're bad, you're going to hell. Better do this. Better make mom and dad proud. No, she just said, wherever you go, you're taking Jesus. And there's so many times I would sit wherever I was, and I would just think, Jesus, I'm making you sit here. I'm making you listen to this. I'm making you experience this. I love you too much for this. And I'd get up and walk out. The conviction of grace in my life. And all of a sudden... It's like with me, it all changes. And it's no longer scales and weights and balances. But it's Jesus right there before me. Like he said to Simon, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? I say something, hopefully for you to just get this. A lot of things we're impressed with, God's not. God's not impressed with what we call success. You know, God's not shouting down at Satan this morning saying, more people in my church than yours. He just wants people to love him. And God said, be hot or be cold. Don't be lukewarm. What's the point? If your love is money, go get it. Really, go get it. That's what the scripture said. If you're not going to hope in Jesus and your hope is this life, eat, drink, and be merry. Don't spend your time in religion and be miserable and then go to hell and be miserable. Get as much fun out of it as you can. If you think you're going to live for a long time, go build your barns and put all your granary in it. You don't know when you're going to die, but go do that. If you want to make money, go make it. Go get it. 
And when you get it, spend it and live it up. Be hot or be cold. If you want fame and success and popularity, go get it. Go get it. Step on anybody you need to step on to get there. Live it up. Have fun. Be the life of the party. Be the one that everybody talks about. Go after it. If you want the world, go get it. Go get it. Jesus isn't the one begging. But if Jehovah be God, and if he be your God, then go get him and serve him and live for him. By the grace of God, serve him and live for him. And I want to say this last thing about it. In regards to grace, there's a statement in the Bible. And I'm going to ask you this question. The crowning advantage of grace over the law is Christ is in you, the hope of glory. That's the answer. Christ is in me. Christ is in me. If there had been a law, now listen, if there had been a law that could have given life, then righteousness should have come by the law. But the question for the believer is this. Can you rest in believing that grace can give you life? Or are you going to pick up that law along the way and put yourself under that yoke? Father, I pray in the precious name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Ghost, that you would let us by faith embrace the instructions of grace, the presence of Jesus through the Holy Ghost within our life to make us a people, a people of God. Lord, many halt between two decisions, two ways. Lord, let them know, I want you to serve me with all of your heart. I don't want you to serve me in money, me in your job, me in your success, me in your fame, me in your fortune. He told that to the rich young ruler. Take everything you got and sell it, give it to the poor and come follow me. I'm not going to share that with you. Why not this morning allow the Holy Ghost to show us who God is? To see Jesus. To see him in our life. The desire of God is to bless you. He wants to bless you. God wants to fill you with the joy, the infinite pleasures of his nature and of his life and of his kingdom. That's the desire of God. Grace will show you that. Grace will teach you that. Grace will move in you. Cause you to be obedient. Cause you to treasure Jesus more than in all these other things. And you could be in the process right now. But what do you love the most? Who do you love the most? How much do you prize Jesus over everything else? And that's the answer that's going to affect your life. <laughs>